I want to ask you a question, but I don't want you to answer it right away. I maybe just want you to think about it. Um, but here's the question. What makes for a good pastor? What makes for a good pastor? If you want to tell me, I'll take copious notes and make sure I live up to all your expectations. What makes for a good pastor? If you've been around church for any amount of time, I'm sure you've had lots of experiences with pastors. Good pastors, pastors who gave it their best, but they just didn't cut it for whatever reason. Uh, you've, you've probably got a good definition in your mind of the kind of pastor you're looking for. What makes for a good pastor? I've got my own definition. I come from a family of pastors. I'm three generations deep on pastoral ministry. Every man I knew growing up was a pastor. I've served with pastors. I've been mentored by pastors. I'm friends with pastors. It's like everywhere I go, I cannot escape pastors. And there are good pastors. And there are bad pastors. But if I can be honest with you, I'm not really concerned with your definition of a good pastor. And I'm not really concerned with my definition of what a good pastor is. What we need to know is what does God say a good pastor is? How does God define a good pastor? I think this passage this morning has that goal as its focus. Message today is titled, A Healthy Church Has Godly Pastors. And we desperately need them. We need pastors who are concerned with more than budgets and getting people's rear ends in the seats. We need pastors who are more concerned with construction projects and more concerned with life transformation. What we need are those pastors that, according to God's blueprint, are mission-driven, scripture-focused, accountable, and increasingly godly. That's what Paul says a good pastor is in this passage. And with God's help, we're gonna leave here today on the same page fully convinced that whatever definition of good pastors that we brought into this place, it's been realigned to God's blueprint for the kind of pastors we need to lead us. Right? Now, if you've been with us for the past several weeks, we've been working our way through Paul's first letter to Timothy. This is the ninth message. And pretty much up to this point, Paul has been concerned with the corporate life of the church. What kind of people are they supposed to be? What kind of church are they supposed to have? So Paul begins, you'll remember, talking about the foundation of a healthy church is the gospel. Then he addresses the priority, the priority that prayer ought to have among God's people as they come before the Lord, asking him to intervene in the circumstances of their world. Paul talked about the attitudes they should bring into worship and the kind of leaders they need to select from among them. And last week, he talked about the leaders who are leading them astray. But this week, Paul sort of turns the corner away from the corporate responsibility of the people of God to look straight at his protege, Timothy, and tell him what kind of pastor and leader he needs to be. I believe this tells us first and foremost that an effective pastor is not one who is highly skilled. Competencies and skills are necessary in pastoral ministry, but they're not all there is. You need something deeper. You can be a good pastor, but not be a godly pastor. And what Paul wants for Timothy is that he'd go beyond the outward trappings of being a good pastor and he would develop the kind of ministry that flows from within. 
that he'd be a godly pastor. I believe that because of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 6. If you still got your Bible open, you may want to look there. He says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And I think that ought to be the goal of every pastor. It ought to be the goal of every Christian. That someday we're going to stand before the Lord and we want to hear him say one thing. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And Paul says, Timothy, you want to hear that commendation from Jesus? You want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is the kind of pastor you need to be. And so I've drawn these four qualities of a godly pastor together. And I want to show them to you this morning. Right? The first quality that Paul says will make Timothy a good pastor is first off, he must be mission driven. Mission driven. We see this all through the passage we read this morning. The place it comes probably most clearly to us is in verse 16. Paul says to Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Like Timothy is in Ephesus for one specific reason. He's there to see lost people saved and the God's people built up in their faith. Now, his mission is confined to his specific context. And so his first task was to get the false teachers to be quiet and to stop teaching doctrine that contradicts the gospel. And then he was to lay on top of what they had been teaching, the truth, to get people back focused on the mystery of godliness, that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by the angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. He had to get their eyes focused on what was right and true, the message of Jesus by which people come to be saved. And I think the only way Timothy would be able to keep that kind of laser focus, the kind of mission-driven mindset that he needed, was by reflecting deeply on his theology of God's mission. Okay, uh, this is not in your outline, but I want you to think about the theology of God's mission. You know God is on mission. We sometimes think maybe of God sitting up in heaven with his arms crossed and his, you know, kicked back in his lazy boy, just watching the world spin. But man, God is active in the world. He is up to something. Every day he is at work seeking and saving people. We know this because from the beginning, God created our world with an inherent purpose. He created this garden, put Adam and Eve there, said, work it and keep it. And the picture we get is this intimate fellowship between God and man, where everything man needed was found in God and God received the glory and praise from being their provider. But of course, mankind sinned against God, rebelled against his authority, went their own way and were banished from his presence. But God didn't leave them without hope. He said, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna put enmity between your offspring, Eve, and the offspring of the serpent, and he's gonna crush your head and you're gonna bruise his heel. And from the very beginning, God was active fulfilling that promise. He called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he adopted him as his special treasured possession and made a covenant with him that he was gonna make his name great and plant him in the Middle East where people are still fighting today. He's gonna make his name great. He was gonna bless the whole world through him. And God proved faithful to that promise, rescuing Abraham's descendants from Egypt and leading them by Moses to Mount Sinai where he gave them his law and ushering them into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, reigning over them as king through David and his son Solomon. And that even when they rebelled against him again and were sent into exile, God promised 
that he would send his servant who would restore the fellowship that was lost and he would make his reign to rule over the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the mission of God and it's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus came fulfilling all those promises and saving for himself a people from every nation, tribe, and language. Maybe you remember back in 1 Timothy chapter three when Paul said there's one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Like when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the mission of God. That God doesn't look on our world as a distant creator, but he looks on it longingly, seeing every lost person desiring that they would come to know the joy and peace that you and I have found in Christ. Timothy knew this, and he was planted in Ephesus to join God in his mission because it's not just the theology of God's mission that was at work. It was also Timothy's personal beliefs in his mission that God chooses to fulfill his purpose in the world through people and sometimes through idiots like me, through pastors, guys who know their own failures, but for whatever reason, God has shown us mercy and grace and appointed us the gospel ministry. That's the way Paul talked about it back in 1 Timothy 2. He said, for this, I was appointed a herald an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that when Jesus had fulfilled his work on earth, having been crucified and rising from the dead on the third day, he then ascended into heaven. And from heaven, he gave gifts to men. He gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be shepherds and teachers that they might equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ until it reached maturity in him. Timothy had joined God in his mission. Timothy was planted and rooted in Ephesus so that God could work through him, bringing lost people to salvation, building up the saints in their faith. I love the way Paul talks about this coming together of God's mission and his mission in 2 Corinthians chapter five, he says, from now on, we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we knew Christ from a worldly perspective, we don't know him that way anymore. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who's reconciled us to himself through Christ. There's the mission of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. And get this, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. There's the mission of Paul and Timothy. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against us, and he's con committed the message of reconciliation to us. The mission of God, the mission of Timothy and Paul. God's reconciled, and he's given us the responsibility of proclaiming the good news to anybody with eyes to hear. See, Paul believed that God was on mission and he had set his whole hope on it. He says in 1 Timothy 4.10, for this we labor and strive because we've set our hope on the living God who's the savior of all people, especially those who believe. Paul's hope, Timothy's hope for a successful and fruitful ministry rested in the mission of God working itself out through them. Like I believe good pastors are fundamentally mission-driven like that. They evaluate their ministry 
with one simple metric. Are lost people getting saved and are God's people being transformed to be more like Jesus? Building projects are cool. And you better believe it's on my resume. And for the rest of my life, I'm gonna tell my grandchildren what God did among us in renovating our building. But God doesn't care a hill of beans about our church building. God's mission is not to renovate our sanctuary. His mission is to save the lost. I tell you, good pastors feel this weight. By the way, one good pastor, Horatius Benar, a 19th century Scottish pastor said it. He said, we take for granted that the object of the Christian ministry is to convert sinners and to edify the body of Christ. No faithful minister can possibly rest short of this. Applause, fame, popularity, honor, wealth, all these are vain. If souls are not won, if saints are not matured, our ministry itself is in vain. That is the picture of a good pastor, a man who is mission-focused, submitting himself to God's activity in the world and joining him in it. Number two, they're word-focused. They're word-focused. All throughout this letter, Paul consistently calls Timothy back to a focus on the scriptures. Even in the passage we read, he says it like three or four times, talking about the good teaching, the words of the faith. It's consistently about the scriptures. And if you're the type of person who only shows up to church on Sunday morning and you don't really know me, it may be easy for you to think that all I do is talk about the Bible, that I stand up here for 35, 45, on bad weeks, even longer minutes, talking about the Bible. Like this guy is word focused. Okay, we get it. But I think Paul means more than that when he's talking about Timothy's commitment to the scriptures. I don't think Paul is mainly thinking about Timothy's public ministry. We're gonna talk about that in a second. I don't think he mainly thinks that Timothy should look at the Bible as the raw material out of which you pull out lessons and sermons and teachings, devotions, inspirational thoughts. That's not Paul's relationship to the scriptures and he doesn't want Timothy to come to the scripture just as raw material for his work. Instead, I think first off, Paul wants Timothy to personally feed on the scriptures. That is his first priority when it comes to the Bible. You gotta personally feed on it. We see that in verse six. He says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of faith and the good teaching that you follow. Maybe your Bible says something different. My Bible says nourished. Yours might say trained up or reared up or brought up in. The Greek word literally means to be fed. And the context is the picture is of a baby drinking its mother's milk and receiving the nourishment it needs to mature. It's reared on its mother's milk, raised up in the sustenance that comes from a mother's milk. And Paul says Timothy has the same relationship to the Bible. The Bible for Timothy is not simply the raw material for lessons and sermons. It's his daily bread. That every day he comes back again and again to the scriptures to be nourished, to be fed, to be filled up, to be empowered for all that God would do through him. In doing this, Timothy was going to be a lot like Jesus, who told Satan when he was tempted, you know it's written, man won't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
all that God would do through Timothy, the whole measure of his life's work depended on him daily receiving spiritual nourishment by encountering God in scripture. And look, let me just say, thinking about this now, Timothy had this as a pattern for his life. And it didn't come from some pastor or a seminary perspective. It came from his mother and grandmother. Listen, listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. As for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy, like a baby on its mother's milk, you've known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I mean, Timothy's mom and grandma had been speaking the word of God to him all his life and it had produced in him the kind of maturity that God was then able to use to fulfill his purpose in Ephesus. And Paul wanted Timothy to continue doing that, to never graduate beyond a humble submission to God in scripture. I think Paul has to say that because you just need to know from a pastor's perspective that there is a constant temptation for us to come to the Bible simply as a source for the good things we want to say to our people. Like after you spend week in and week out developing messages, the groundbreaking, world-shattering, awe-inspiring realities of the Word of God sometimes gets lost on you. That when you handle spiritual things on a day in and day out basis, you can lose the wonder. I think what Paul is telling Timothy is, Timothy, don't let that happen. Don't think that you know all there is to know about the Bible. Don't simply use it as a stock book of phrases to throw at your people. Remember, you meet God here. This is the word of God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's breathed out and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God, that Timothy, you would be equipped and complete for every work God wants you to do. So a good pastor is word-focused in that he personally feeds on the scripture. But then he's also gonna publicly proclaim it too. We see that in verse 11. Paul says, command and teach these things. Now, Timothy has a position of authority, and Paul commands him to command the people in Ephesus to obey. That's heavy. Pastor's supposed to stand here and say, thus saith the Lord, this is what God's word says, and now y'all go do it, or else you're being disobedient. It'll be arrogant if you build your ministry on anything other than the word of God. And that's why Paul says in verse 13, until I come, give yourself to the public reading, to exhortation, and to teaching. He fills out what this public ministry of the word is supposed to look like. He says you're gonna publicly read the Bible. Publicly read the Bible. The public reading of scripture is a fundamental aspect of the corporate life of the people of God. It was commanded by God in the Old Testament. Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 33, 34 gives a description for every seven, seven years, people of God are supposed to gather in the place that God chooses. Every man, every woman, and every child who has understanding is supposed to gather before him and they're gonna read the law of God from beginning to end. We see a pretty dramatic fulfillment of that command in the book of Nehemiah. 
where they build a giant wooden pulpit and Ezra the scribe gets up there with his copy of God's law. The Levites gather around him and the people stand for hour upon hour for seven days hearing the word of God read and the Levites explaining the sense. I mean, God's people were commanded to hear his word read. Now, in a world without convenient copies of God's word, how many of y'all like to read your Bible on your phone? Anybody? I've been doing my quiet time in the YouVersion Bible app for the past six months or so. I've really enjoyed that. Not my typical mode of interacting with God's word, but it's been good. I can guarantee you, Moses wasn't scrolling Deuteronomy on his iPhone, right? There was a copy of God's word in a central location. And every seven years, they're gonna pull out that big book, the family Bible, and the people are gonna gather around and they're gonna hear it. These kids are there because it's the first time in their life they're gonna hear God's word. In a world without convenient copies of the Bible, public reading is necessary because people don't have their own copy to read at home. If they're gonna hear God's word, it's gonna have to get into their heart through their ears. So give yourself to the public reading of scripture. Then he says, exhort. Now the exhortation follows along from the public reading. In the synagogue, they had a set lectionary by which they read through the Old Testament's various sections every year. So after somebody got up to read, they would then sit down and offer a word of encouragement, an exhortation. They'd preach on it. Jesus does this in Luke chapter 4. He goes into the synagogue, and the president of the synagogue sees him come in, and they say, hey, would you mind doing the reading today? And Jesus picks up the scroll of Isaiah, turns to the place where it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to release the captives from prison, to open the eyes of the blind, to unstop deaf ears. Jesus closes the scroll, sits down and begins to preach, and he says, today, this word's been fulfilled in your hearing. And this was just a pattern in the synagogue. They'd read from the scroll, then somebody would give an exhortation. I believe what Paul's commanding Timothy to do is what I'm doing right now. Reading a passage of scripture and then applying it to the situations and circumstances of your life. Today, this is my goal. We've read 1 Timothy 4, 6 to 16, which tells us what a good pastor looks like. When we leave this place, I want your definition of what a good pastor is to be in full alignment with God's definition. I want us to be on the same page. I want us to know how God is gonna evaluate me and he, how he's gonna evaluate your selection of me to be your pastor. I'm gonna exhort you, encourage you, and in a little while, I'm gonna make you publicly commit to two promises, okay? But I'm exhorting, encouraging you, I'm preaching at you. Paul says also you gotta teach. You gotta explain the details, the context, so that the people know what God is saying to them so they'd be fully equipped to obey. That is the public ministry of the word. I think good pastors are committed to it. Look, good pastors know there are a lot of things we can say. You can ask Aaron. You watch out, I'll start preaching at the drop of a hat about all kinds of stuff. I'll argue with anybody over anything. Good pastors know there's a lot of things you can say, but there's one thing you must say. There's only one thing. That if God is gonna transform people's lives, if he's gonna save lost people, if he's gonna build up his people, it's not because Brad Mills gets up here and gives you his wisest words of wisdom. I can't inspire you to life change. 
The only thing that can do that is the word of God, which is like a hammer that breaks stone. It's like a flame that melts cold hearts. If I want to see God do his work in this church, in this community, if I want to see God fulfill his mission through me, I better be a servant of this word, explaining it, preaching from it, persuading you with all I have within me to live your life in obedience to what God says right here. He says he loves you. He said he's given you his son. He said if anybody calls on the name of the Lord, he'll be saved. But how can they hear unless somebody preaches? And how can they preach unless they're sent? Now, pastors believe God has sent us on mission to proclaim his word because it's by his word, the working of his spirit, that he transforms people's lives. So good pastors are word-focused. They're also accountable. And we see this in verse 14, where Paul reminds Timothy of a special event in his life. He says, don't neglect the gift that's in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Don't neglect the gift which was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands of the council of elders. Paul takes Timothy back to this special moment in his life. I think probably at his home church in Lystra where he was well known to the brothers as a man of faith and when he received the gospel and Paul wanted to take him on his missionary journey, I think it's probable that the leaders in that church gathered around Timothy and ordained him. That's what we call it today, we call it ordination. But maybe it's the church in Ephesus. I'm not convinced either way, but I think it's more likely Lystra. And that's probably my own personal bias bleeding through. And let me explain why. I think ordination is really important in the life of a good pastor. Um, Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes, said ordination was just dirty hands on empty heads. And there's an element of truth to that, but I do wanna push back a little bit because I remember at my ordination council, which is the little meeting they have before an ordination service, my pastor who'd mentored me asked me, he said, Brad, what would you do if we decided not to ordain you today? And I quoted him, Spurgeon's quote, and I said, I'm gonna preach the gospel. Because yeah, as a pastor, you feel this sense of calling. A young guy has this fire in his bones that's shut up within him and it's just bound to come out. He's gonna talk about Jesus everywhere he goes. He has a desire to do good to the people around him, to bless them by showing them God. So I don't think ordination is useful as some kind of hoop that guys have to jump through or as credentials that you need to have permission to preach Jesus. Now we're all called to preach Jesus. And it doesn't matter if somebody lays their hands on you or not, you be obedient to what God's called you to do. But ordination has for me been a constant source of encouragement and accountability. Because after they did that ordination council, they stood me up in front of my home church. The people who'd seen me when I had a fake lip ring in because I wanted to be scandalous. They'd seen me when I was rebellious and running from God. They had put up with bad sermons and the kind of pressing that a young guy always does when he's casting judgment on his elders and the people who are leading the church thinking that he could do it better if he just had the shot. They all put up with so much from me. And then they sat there on that Sunday night in May of 2011 
and cried as I shared my experience of coming to faith in Jesus and as I explained why I thought I wanted to give my life to ministry. And they stood up and they said, yes, we see that in you. God has gifted you and called you to ministry and we're gonna put our stamp of approval on it. They said that we as your church love you, support you, you have our prayers, get after the work God's given you to do. And so they brought this chair up. My wife came and sat beside me. We weren't even married yet. Then all my mentors and the men I looked up to, my dad and my granddad, gathered around me, put their hands on my shoulders, on my head, prayed over me. Now, I don't know if there was any prophecy going on. I don't know if anybody had a special word from the Lord, but I can tell you that every word they said went straight to my heart and convinced me that I was where I was supposed to be doing what I was supposed to do. Over the past 13 years, I have thought about that day over and over and over. Not simply because it was encouraging to think about it, and wow, look at how cool that was. But I can't tell you how many times I've second-guessed myself in being a pastor. How many days I've thought to myself when ministry was hard and things were rough and my family was stretched, like, God, what am I doing? Like, I should have been an investment banker. Maybe I should get into crypto now, non-fungible tokens. Maybe I should start a lawn care business. It doesn't rain enough in Central Texas for a man to support himself in lawn care. Maybe I should create art prints on my computer and then screen print them in my garage and sell them online. Like that would be better than this, right? And I think back to me. 22 years old, standing in front of my church, surrounded by my mentors, making a public commitment that as long as I live, I'm giving myself completely to God. Wherever he tells me to go, I'll go. Wherever, whatever he says to do, I'll do. My life is wide open before me and there's nothing more I want than to join Jesus in his mission on earth. For me to go back on that now It's not just publicly humiliating. It's the height of stupidity. That's willfully taking on a disobedient life. It's neglecting the calling and commissioning I received from God. It's neglecting the gifts he's given me to use my speaking abilities to build a name for myself or to build some kind of company would be the height of arrogance against the God who's used my, my weakness for his purpose. I'm telling you, a good pastor, if there are any of us, is accountable, accountable to God. As a workman who will someday have to stand before him and give an account for his life. Paul says, everybody's work's gonna get tested. Some are gonna build with sticks and straw. Some are gonna build with gold and precious stones, but all of it's gonna get burned with fire. In the end, what's standing matters. I wanna be approved by God. I'm accountable to him, but I'm accountable to him through you. That when I stood in front of you preaching in view of a call, you deciding if I'm going to be your pastor, I made some commitments that I was going to love you and that I was going to shepherd you, that I was going to preach the Bible to you, that I was going to always be for you and in your corner, fight with you and fight for you. For me to abandon that now, the height of vocational neglect. So good pastors 
are accountable. But lastly, good pastors are increasingly godly. Increasingly godly. They're growing to be more like Jesus. We see this all through the passage, but especially in verse 7, where Paul says, Have nothing to do with silly myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Discipline yourself for godliness. Look, I wish, this would have been so great. And somebody should try to figure this out if this is possible. And if it is, I'll go back and redo it. If at the end of your ordination, they give you the special Bible they gave me and the certificate with their signatures, and then also that special sauce that all of a sudden makes me perfect and holy, I would have loved to have had the unique and special impartation of the Holy Spirit to make me completely righteous and godly all at once. But pastors are people. And godliness comes by hard work. The word Paul uses, train or discipline yourself, is the Greek word gymnazo, which describes the effort that an athlete puts forth to get better in their sport. Would Tiger Woods have been the golfer he was if he hadn't been on that driving range hitting thousands of golf balls over and over and over and over again? Michael Jordan wouldn't have been the basketball player he was if he hadn't have stood at the free throw line, various places in the court, making all his shots over and over and over. No pitcher shows up to the baseball field throwing 100 miles an hour just by luck. Now, athletes put in hard work to get better. And Paul tells Timothy, you got to train yourself like that to be godly. Pursue it. Godliness doesn't come by happenstance. It comes through disciplined effort towards a goal. Now, look, you know, all God's people are called to be godly. I warned you last week, don't settle for being good. You got to be godly. But this is especially the case for pastors. There's this saying that people sometimes say that talent can take you farther than your character can keep you. There have been a lot of pastors who were great speakers, great motivational leaders who built big churches and ministries, and then their character caught up with them. They came crashing down. Satan wants to do that. He wants to wait until a pastor gets to the height of his influence and then bring him crashing down because then he calls into question everything for everybody who was blessed and encouraged by their ministry. That's, that's the problem with ungodly pastors. They don't just ruin their lives. They ruin the lives of everybody around them, which is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 16, keep a close watch on your life, your manner of life. Look at the way you live. Keep a close watch on it and on what you're teaching. Persevere in these things, for by doing so, you'll save yourself and your hearers. The way pastors live fundamentally determines the fruitfulness of their ministry. And I don't have to convince you. You've seen evidence of it. You've lived through it, how terrible it is to have an ungodly pastor. So Paul says, Timothy, train yourself for godliness. He says specifically, there are four areas that Timothy needs to focus on. And I think these are especially important for guys like Timothy and me. Young guys who've been called to lead a church with people in it who are older than they are. Paul says, don't let anybody look down on you for youth, but set an example for the believers. For Paul, he knew Timothy had no shot 
of fulfilling the ministry God had given him in Ephesus. If he was just going to think that because he was the pastor, people were going to listen to him. Just because he think he had the name tag or the name plate on the desk. Hey, I'm the pastor. You're going to listen to me. This is the way it's going to be. No, it doesn't work like, I've, at least I have not found that it works well to try to do that in a church. Okay, But Paul said, you're going to have incredible leadership capital. You're going to be able to lead this church if you'll do this. Set an example for the believers in your speech. A good pastor talks to people and talks about people in a way that honors God. They don't run people down. They don't talk down to them. They love them. And it's obvious whether they're talking to them to their face or talking about them behind their back. They set an example in the way they speak. They set an example in the life they live. They're above reproach. You remember that back in 1 Timothy 3, that an overseer must be above reproach. The whole manner of a good pastor's life is exemplary. It's also his faith. And I think Paul means two things by this. Number one is the faith that a pastor has in God, like his doctrinal knowledge. I think a pastor should strive to be the most well-educated and knowledgeable person when it comes to spiritual things in the church. He'll never do it. Some of y'all have been reading the Bible for 50, 60 years. You know things about God that I won't discover for another 25 years. But I think it ought to be a pastor's effort every day to try to learn and grow in his understanding of the things of God so that if anybody asks him a question, he can tell them his answer or at least knows where to go to find it. But I also think there's another element of faith that Paul has in mind, and I think that's the subjective element. And I've gotten myself in trouble here a few times. But I think Paul expects Timothy to be more confident in God, more trusting of God than anybody else in his church. See, sometimes pastors get self-confident. And we see God work through us, and we start to believe all the kind things people say to us at the door on the way out. And we think that we're the, we're the reason things are going so well. And we lose our simple humility and faith in God. Eventually, people start to believe the same thing. They start to think that, hey, what would we do if so-and-so wasn't our pastor anymore? And y'all just got to know. If any good thing happens in a church, it's despite the pastor, not because of him. It's God at work through him. So we have to believe with all our heart that God is at work in our church and that whatever problems or obstacles we face, he's gonna get us through. And then lastly, Paul says, you gotta set an example in purity. And I think by that, Paul means his relationship to the opposite sex, that pastors have to go above and beyond in setting an example in the way they relate to the people in the church. That's it. That's what a godly pastor, a good pastor is. They're mission-driven. They're word-focused, they're accountable, and they're increasingly godly. And so I know this isn't an ordination service, and you've come unprepared, but I wonder if we could make some commitments to each other this morning. Listen, as long as God lets me serve Central Baptist Church as pastor, I commit to you that I will be mission-driven. I will have a myopia I'm gonna be so focused on reaching lost people and seeing your lives transformed so that you'd be more like Jesus, you're gonna get annoyed by me. And I'm gonna bring it up again and again and again. That I'm not gonna be satisfied with a few baptisms. That as long as there's a world out here dying and going to hell, as long as there, I'm not giving up.
I'm gonna be laser focused on the mission God has given our church to share the hope of the gospel in our circle of influence until every man, woman, and child knows and follows Jesus. You know, people are moving to Luling, Texas. They're coming. God put our church here to reach them. And I'm gonna tell you that until you're tired of hearing it. It's gonna be like the pigeons in the Bible. Gonna have them coming out your nose. So I'm gonna be mission driven. I'm gonna be word focused. Look, when you show up at church, it may not be the greatest message you've ever heard, but it's gonna be a biblical message. It's gonna come to you from this book. I don't have anything worth saying. Listen, I try my best at home to coach my family up to let's do some big things for God. Listen, God has said it all. He knows what he wants from you in your life. He knows what he wants from us in our church and he's laid it out real clear. I gotta get out of the way, let you see him in his word and challenge you to obey it. I'm gonna be accountable. I wanna be accountable. Beware of a pastor who is a law to himself, who acts better than, like the rules don't apply. I wanna be accountable. I want you to hold me accountable. I wanna be accountable to being this kind of pastor. And when I lose my focus and when the messages start to slip and you're like, hey, we just want the word again, Brad, please tell me, please get me back on track. And I promise to you that my daily pursuit is gonna be to be more like Jesus. I'm gonna mess up a ton, so I need your mercy and your grace. But my heart's desire is to be as godly as I can be. And I commit to you, as long as I'm your pastor, this is what you should expect of me. This is the standard you should hold me to. But I wonder if you commit to me that as long as I'm your pastor, will you let this be your standard by which you evaluate me? Will you understand my heart and where I'm coming from? And so if something doesn't seem right or sound right, will you give me the chance to live up to what I believe a good pastor should be? Will you hold me to this standard for good and bad? If this were a wedding, this would be where you said, I do. No, I'm just kidding. And then, hey, this is the second commitment I need you to make, and this one's serious. If there should ever come a point when God calls me away from Central Baptist Church, or if I get hit by a train going to City Market, or if by other, some other circumstance you find yourself without a pastor, do you promise to use this as the criteria you look for when you hire somebody else? Sorry. Not their master's degree, not their experience, not how big the budget was at the church they're coming from. Will you desperately desire a man to lead you who's mission-driven, word-focused, accountable, and increasingly godly? I hope so. If that is what we want, the kind of pastor I wanna be, the kind of pastor you want, then I can assure you, according to God's blueprint, we will be a healthy church for his glory and the good of the people in our community. Will you pray with me as we ask God to help us?